This is a Soul Fire production. Hi, this is Kimberly Kleiman Lee, executive coach, performance consultant, and host of the Do I Dare podcast. If you're a leader who wants to inspire, empower, and raise the leadership bar, then you have come to the right place, my friend. Here you will get access to powerful yet practical solutions that elevate your performance and dissolve roadblocks. Do you dare to lead in a way that moves the needle and scales the impact? Yeah? Then let's do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Do I Dare podcast. I'm Kimberly Kleiman Lee, your host. This is episode five, and I can't wait to uh, unpack this week's topic of trust with each of you. I've received so many terrific messages and uh, notes about the podcast. I'm so happy that it's resonating with each of you. So thanks again for not only your support, uh, but for your feedback um, and sharing your suggestions. Trust is always at the top of everyone's list, especially for those who are going into a, a new role um, or perhaps a new team. Again, I think this one uh, could be a great episode for you. So not only uh, review, rate, and subscribe, but please share it with anyone you think could benefit from its content. All right, let's get started. In last week's podcast, I talked about coming out of my leadership funk of sorts. Since I study human behavior and leadership for a living, it's not difficult to predict my thoughts and opinions uh, that have transpired over the last four years. I can't even say that these comments are political in any way. Very little of what I saw over the last four years had anything to do with the political agenda that moved our country forward. That's what politics is, right? It's an agenda. And the Republicans have one, the Democrats have one, the independents have kind of a hybrid of the two. You hope that the agendas that hit the congressional floor will serve a greater good, will serve the majority. The agenda I witnessed, though, seemed to be a, a personal and perhaps self-serving one. The data shows very little progress was actually made. And I observed the political agenda rooted much more in fear as opposed to one that was based on or built on trust. And that's why I picked today's topic uh, for this podcast, Trust. It's the ability to build, foster, maintain, and repair trust, trusting relationships, healthy connections. I think it's one of the top three critical leadership behaviors, quite frankly. You usually know it when you have it, and when you don't, you usually see the impacts of not having it on your relationships and the quality of your performance outcomes. You can hear it in people's requests of you or on their pushback of your requests of them. You can see it sometimes all over the face of the person sitting across from you. It comes across as, I don't quite trust you. This might not end well for me. I'm not sure you'll be careful with my stuff. Fill in whatever word you want for stuff. It could be ego, reputation, product, customer relationship, favorite sweatshirt, or daughter. Another terrifying milestone is when your teenage daughters start to date. There's a whole season worth of podcasts on that topic. For those of us who aim to have trusting relationships, I bet we can always name one or two humans, people, leaders, who are better at building it than we are. And we try to study how they do it and adopt whatever best practices we can with the hopes that we'll be more successful the next time. As I mentioned, I'm a mom, a mom of three teenagers, actually, and this word trust comes up a lot. It's in the form of, don't you trust me? Or you can trust me, mom, I promise. 
or from me, I would say, I trust you know a good decision from a bad one in this situation. Let me know if you need my help talking that through. It's a tale of those oldest time, right? When do you start loosening your grip or control and let your kids explore, experiment, and make their own decisions, and on occasion fail? How can you, within a hot minute, as your kids are waiting for an answer to a request that is giving you hives, at least in my case, that's what it does, how can you envision the impact that your offer of trust could have on them if they make a bad choice? Parenting is not for sissies. I give myself a C plus or B minus at best. I'm convinced that anyone who gives themselves an A is either delusional or lying. The folks who parent above average are my tribe. By the time you get really good at it, you're a grandparent. Perhaps that's both the reward and the karma. That version of trust aside, the trust we're going to be talking about for the rest of this podcast episode could be applied to parenting. I'll just let you pull the nuggets out for that application. Instead, I'd like to share some strategies and techniques for building trust that are offered to my clients. Our team has a product called Healthy Teams, and uh, we happen to use Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of Teams as the foundation for this work. It's a terrific book. If you're not familiar with Patrick Lencioni's work, I highly recommend you give it a read. It'll take two hours and will definitely change the way you think about high-functioning, high-performing groups of individuals. Lencioni writes in a bit of a parable format. In this particular book, he's unpacking the story of a highly dysfunctional kind of dot-com tech-type company. The board has a hunch that the leaders aren't working well together at all and decide to bring in a replacement CEO. The person the chairman of the board brings in is not at all what everybody else expects. It's a woman, uh, older, has a manufacturing background versus a tech background, could go on and on and on about her background. So, of course, people were thinking she is not like us, therefore, couldn't be all that great. The thing is, though, she was extraordinary at building high-performing teams. I won't ruin the plot or the grand finale for you, but know that throughout the book, he unpacks what he believes to be a model for every high-performing team. They need to have five uh, different behavior levels, if you will, and he rates those levels against all of the teams who are interested in this content. Uh, as either red, yellow, or green. Green, rock solid, keep going. Yellow, have some work to do. Red, have a lot of work to do. So when you think about Lencioni's model, again, he thinks about this in five, um, five major categories. First is they need to have a high level of trust in one another. They need to be able to have conflict up to the line, but never crossing it. They need to be committed to the same journey, same priorities same level of quality. They need to be able to hold each other accountable to do their very best work. And they need to be dedicated to the results of the group as opposed to their own individual results. Now, I've read a lot of work on the concept of teams, everything from highly academic to much like Lindsay Oni's work, which I wouldn't call academic, but it definitely rang true for me. There's Stanley McChrystal's work, Team of Teams. Some of you might have heard of it. Uh, Building an A-Team by Whitney Johnson. Teams That Work by Tenenbaum, another good one. Teamwork 101 by Maxwell. There's some really cool stuff coming out of the Harvard Business Review. For those of you who subscribe, if you don't, I highly recommend uh, that be on your must-read list for all leaders. Subscriptions are pretty reasonable to HBR. The list is endless when it comes to this topic of teamwork, and I'll put some of my favorites again in the show notes. But here's why I stick with Lencioni's work. It's really quite simple. 
It's simple to understand. The model is simple to remember and recall. The statements that team members are asked to rate hit at the core of everything I think a high-performing team is or should be doing. So Lencioni's book spends a lot less time unpacking a model or a theory, that sort of thing, um, and instead um, spends more time to help you understand the impacts that these five behaviors have on unhealthy uh, teams or unhealthy behavior within a team. So we start every engagement with an assessment from the table group. That's Patrick Lencioni's company. Tablegroup.com is where you can see some of this information. The output of that assessment is then the basis for the workshops we curate for every client. Each of the five behaviors is color-coded, as I mentioned, red, yellow, or green, depending on the average score the team members give each behavior statement. And you probably um, would be interested to know that I have curated this product probably hundreds of times over the last 10 years. And without a doubt, each workshop has started with a dialogue and experience about trust, the topic of trust. You see, according to Lencioni's model, if you have anything less than a green shade on any part of the model above trust, anything less than green, you need to go right back to trust. You need to study it, unpack it, understand how trust, your level of current, your current level of trust could be impacting those other behaviors, and then work your way back up the model. The model is in the shape of a triangle, and trust is the foundation of the triangle. His perspective is if you don't have trust, it's really very difficult to get to the other components of the triangle, at least to get to it in a way that actually feels good. So again, give the book a read. I'd highly recommend it. The work my team curates or facilitates for clients makes a huge difference for these teams. They have dedicated time to study and unpack their strengths, and they have equally dedicated the time to study their dysfunction. So once upon a time, I thought ropes courses and trust falls and those sorts of things would get teams there. And now a couple decades into this work, I really find that what's needed and quite frankly, most powerful is honest, authentic dialogue among well-meaning humans who have perhaps lost their way when it comes to working together and toward a common good. Again, a simple dialogue that takes some courage and risk, totally get it, but a simple dialogue that clears the air, has people walking away empty, they've shared what they came to share, that everybody leaves with all their fingers, all their toes, that matters. And to make space for that kind of conversation is critical. It's a critical skill for a leader to have. So give that some thought. I'm always asked about how much time it will take to build trust. How long will this take? I'm, I've got this new team. I'll do everything you say, but can I expect there to be like substantial amounts of trust by February? Well, it's just not that easy, right? It's simple, but not easy. I go right back to Patrick Lencioni's quote, actually in his book, it's not time, but it's courage that builds the level of trust that humans need to feel safe. The whole concept, Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety, it's, it's the foundation of her work, right? Brene Brown, I mentioned that in last week's episode, this concept of vulnerability. If you don't have high levels of trust, Lencioni says you have invulnerability, the inability to be vulnerable. Couldn't agree more. For those of you who can't or who haven't yet invested in a well-curated team workshop, I'm going to offer you five other things you might be able to do while you're waiting for a time to do that. And again, I know in this day of COVID, it's a little difficult for folks to gather in person and do some of those traditional team retreats or team sessions and so forth. 
do not wait until we can all be together again. There are so many things you can do from a distance that will help build uh, the level of trust that you need on your team. So let's dive in. First, break bread. It sounds simple. Again, might not be easy, especially in this time of COVID, but let's just talk this one through. Other cultures outside of the U.S., quite frankly, are so much better than us in the U.S. with this concept. Taking somebody out for a cup of coffee, a lunch, um, a dinner, it's just in some cultures the only way to get work or business done. It's the only way to build trust, enough trust where people will actually spend money or time on you, um, and to perhaps repair something that had gone awry. Again, other places for some reason just get this so much better and stronger than I do. Um, and it's been fascinating as I've traveled globally to really understand and observe and see how human uh, behavior modifies or morphs um, in the light of just a simple concept of breaking bread. I'm a huge believer. Now, again, in light of COVID, you might need to switch it up a bit. You need a way to have a well-curated conversation that's open and honest and mutually beneficial, and you might not be able to do that in person these days. So here's a couple small, small thoughts, but again, something to have you leaning into this concept of building trust with some food involved, perhaps. So could you switch it up a bit and mail off a Starbucks gift card within a Starbucks cup? And on the inside, offer a personalized note. You know, I'm all about the notes. That says something like, looking forward to our conversation on Thursday. Grab a cup of coffee and we'll talk then. I love doing those for team meetings, actually, where I get, let's say, 20 cups, 20 $10 gift cards, mail them out to all the members who are going to be attending that meeting or that workshop or that session, especially if it's remote, as it has been for the last year. It's my way of helping them understand that this is a commitment. We want their full engagement. And I want them to be well caffeinated. So when you think about it, it's really just a thoughtful way to open a dialogue and to let people know that you're thinking of them. That's really all this is. If you can um, open up a lunch or a drink or a uh, dinner conversation with, with um, the folks that you most need to build or maintain trust with, that's fantastic. Having a neutral ground over a casual experience is another great way for folks to just put their arms down, so to speak, and engage in a mutually beneficial conversation. So think about that, this concept of breaking bread. When you can, do you show up in the employee cafeteria? Do you join people for conversation? Do you invite people to go to the cafeteria with you? Do you offer to bring something back for them if they just can't get away? What can you do to help kind of feed or fuel them as a way to be in service to them. Different, different perspective, I know. The second way to build trust is through gratitude. Showing, uh, authentically feeling, and applying gratitude to others. This one is quite personal for me. Uh, it took me a while to get it, quite frankly. Um, but what I, when I did, uh, it became life-changing. One of the best ways to build trust is to appreciate the goodness in those around you. Uh, people want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be understood. And again, it took me a long time to get this lesson. I thought if I just put my head down, worked hard, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I would be seen in a way that was productive, helpful, engaging. Why would anybody doubt my intention if I'm working so hard for the good of the group? That's well, just not how it works, right? It's not about you. It's about the others. 
Are they being seen? Are their ideas being considered? Are they being understood? Even if their idea isn't taken, has it been considered? Have you really listened? Again, as I mentioned, it took me a while to get this, but once I did, hmm, game changer. I don't get it right every time, full disclosure, but I definitely lean in. And that's what I'm recommending for each of you. I once heard a quote, I think it's by Stephen Covey. I keep getting, giving him credit for this one, but somebody correct me if I, I got the origins wrong. It's that all humans want two things, period. They want to feel that they matter and they want to be a part of something great. Doesn't that just sum it all up? People want to feel that they matter and they want to be a part of something great. The movie Avatar, if you guys um, haven't watched that one, it's an oldie but a goodie. It had this great kind of tone, spiritual undertones uh, to it. And the characters, I'm not going to remember the, the language that they spoke, but um, James Cameron, the director, just went to painstaking lengths to create this incredible other world. Everything from the plants that he studied and named to the language that they used. And each character in the movie greeted each other with, I see you. So instead of in the States, for example, we say, hi, hello, how are you, etc. These characters greeted each other with, I see you. The word namaste is a beautiful Sanskrit word, which literally translates to something like, the light in me sees the light in you. Again, I see you. Gorgeous. If you want to have deeper levels of trust among colleagues, within your team or with your kids, you need to see who they are as they are. Boy, this is a tough one for me as a mom, maybe even as a wife sometimes, quite frankly. But you need to see folks as they are. Again, simple, but not easy. So what could you do to get into a practice of gratitude, to truly see people, catch people for who they are? as opposed to who you think they should be. So here's a couple thoughts for you. As I mentioned in a previous podcast episode, I think everybody needs to invest in some great stationery, personalized or not. I tend to purchase boxes of cards wherever I go. Airport um, bookstores are phenomenal for this. You can get some great art, blank cards. Uh, whatever you do, just keep a stash in your office. I happen to carry five cards with me every week with the intention of spending those five cards by Friday, to those I see, air quotes. It could be for just giving thanks for something that somebody did for me. It could be an acknowledgement of either a difficult time or a job well done. It could be um, a wish that I have for them. Hope they can get home and not do work this weekend, spend some time with their family. It could be certainly an apology. I blew it. I'm sorry. Um, would love a second chance. Certainly in one week, you will have encountered a human deserving of one of those sentiments, right? And wouldn't it be nice if they received your reply or your attention in the form of a handwritten note as opposed to a quick email? The last art for sure, and that's why it just shocks people when they get it. It's a shock to the system. Now, in these days of COVID, email is definitely a second best, but you can still pop a card in the mail to have an even more powerful effect when the receiver opens up that envelope. So again, invest in some stationery, start doling out some authentic, well-thought-out note cards of gratitude. Next one, kind of along the same lines of a of note, you could send an email with your sentiments and copy that person's manager or their manager's manager. 
giving that individual a spotlight they wouldn't otherwise have. I've come across a few folks in my life that have truly felt that offering a spotlight to others would somehow diminish the brightness of their own. And I got to tell you, this could not be further from the truth. So can you come from a place of abundance as opposed to scarcity when it comes to giving attention? There's enough to go around. There's enough attention to go around. There's enough praise to go around. There's enough highlighting to go around. And the more you model it, the more others will adopt similar behavior. Again, game changer to have everybody trying to catch somebody in the act. But in this case, a good one. Think about it. When was the last time a police officer stopped you on the highway to tell you what a great job you were doing? Just doesn't happen, right? So maybe an extreme example. But how can you, knowing it's so much easier for you to catch somebody doing something good, how can you make that a daily, maybe weekly practice? Of your leadership. When I hosted executive um, leadership courses, I always give a box of personalized stationery as their graduation gift. Could you maybe offer the same gift to each of your team members? You know, we have enough coffee mugs. Uh, Stationery costs about the same as a coffee mug. Could you offer your team members each a, a stack or a box of note cards and dare them to use it? When I worked at General Electric's GE Crotonville, it's kind of like their corporate university of sorts. We wanted to build this muscle in our leaders. Folks are busy, stressed, tired, and we weren't seeing enough collaboration, collegialism, certainly trust among um, our leaders. Folks are just busy, right? They're all doing their best to to do their best. So we wanted to build this muscle in our leaders, and we created something we called a gratitude station right in the middle of the main building. We were inspired by this idea, full disclosure, during a best practice study at Airbnb. I took a group of executives out there to study their business model, and at their corporate headquarters, they had this thing called a giraffe station. I thought it was brilliant. I wrote about it in one of my blogs. You're more than welcome to uh, check that out. I'll I'll put a link to it in my show notes, but um, really phenomenal idea and we stole with pride. So in this regard, huge shout out to Trisha Chorlog and Carrie Burns who did a phenomenal job curating that vision to life. It was simple. On any given week at Crotonville, we could have about 1,500 to 2,000 guests pass through our doors, many of them GE employees attending a class, but a lot of folks were customers, clients, partners, vendors, folks from the outside, right? So passers-by would take a peek at this station, gratitude station, kind of curious. And there was a big sign that invited them in. In essence, all they had to do was grab a free note card, write their note of thanks, acknowledgement, encouragement, what have you, put it in an envelope, address it, and put it in this box. We would take care of the rest. We would mail their well wishes on their behalf anywhere in the world. Visiting customers would take pictures in front of that station. Guests would send off their own notes of gratitude in participation of of what mattered to us. We modeled it. They followed along. It was one of my absolute favorite projects at GE. Open every team meeting. Let's talk about the third way you can start to build trust. Gratitude is one huge way. You could certainly do that in every team meeting. Uh, I love when folks open up with, uh, hey, let's just get some good news going here. Who has some good news to share about one of their colleagues? And before you know it, momentum builds. and People are giving shout outs to each other. Everything from a kid that wins a hockey tournament to a project that was well-received by a senior leader to um, a, um, a milestone that was reached. 
So don't let gratitude stop with the formal stuff. You can certainly give a shout out during a team meeting. But here's some other things you can do during your team meeting that will help build trust, build connection among the people you work with. I bet those of you listening have your fair share of meetings. So let's see if you might be able to fill in um, those meetings with, with some of these ideas. You don't need your meeting to be eight hours or even four or two hours long to do any of these activities. Ten minutes spent in each team meeting could make a phenomenal impact on your ability to lead a high-performing team. So first idea. I love this one called Two Truths and a Lie. I use it quite a bit in my uh, classes. And in essence, um, it's uh, super simple. You either have an index card or they can do it in an email. Uh, again, if you're virtual, works both ways. Um, you will have them put their name at the very top of the email or the note card and then write three statements about themselves. Two of those statements should be true and one should be false or a lie. Make sure you know who it's coming from and make sure you know which one is the lie. Explain to your team that um, they should send the responses or give the responses to you and that only you will know the detail. Then in each of your team meetings, unpack or read two or three of these entries to the broader group each meeting. So if you have 20 people, this might take you, let's say, six different meetings to get through everybody. Again, it's something to just kind of weave into your interactions, get the group warmed up before you dive into the business of the day. In this case, you're going to ask the group, you're going to read the statements first, and then you're going to ask the group, who do you think wrote this? And you're going to wait for all of their great ideas. And then usually they'll guess and try to work their way all the way through the team. You aren't going to give them the answer until the very end. And you say, okay, whose note was this? And they will raise their hand, say it was them, et cetera. Then you're going to say, which one was Kimberly's lie? Now, ensure that their entries are juicy. So you might need to do a little bit of a warm up, especially if English is not their first language. Sometimes this Activity doesn't translate very well without some examples. So I would advise folks to stay away from things like how many kids they've had and how long they've worked for the company. That's all the, you know, uh, the, the easy stuff that perhaps a lot of folks could have similar answers to. Instead, I usually warm them up with a few examples like, um, I was once locked up in a Russian jail for 48 hours. I double dated with Princess Diana. I bumped into Post Malone last week. I have uh, lived uh, in 40 of the 50 United States. I am a hardcore rock and roll guitarist. I was in a mega hit movie with fill-in-the-blank actor. And yes, those were all real examples from previous classes. Of course, curiosities are going to be high about this. And as people guess the details of each juicy statement, um, they're going to um, start to laugh and joke and be amazed and um, it gets silly. That's what you want. People who can put down their guard a little bit, learn a little bit more about the folks they've probably been working side by side with for years and trust will be built. It's all about this webbing, right? This interconnectivity of the human experience. That's where trust goes. Now, again, vulnerability might be uh, necessary for this one, but people only put the statements they feel most comfortable sharing. So uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be too nervous about that one. They will know another thing about each other that seems a bit unique and perhaps private. So it's a, a private team thing, if you will, to have this information about each other. That's why I think it adds to levels of trust. 
Another activity very similar in spirit is to ask each team member to prepare one PowerPoint slide. On the slide should be their name and five pictures. Now, you can curate this a number of different ways, but I simply ask them to add five pictures that represent the things that mean the most to them. Or you could ask them to put five pictures that would tell us more about who they are outside of work. Again, you come up with the statement. But in essence, that's the spirit of what you're asking them to do. The goal is to have one to three people per team meeting share their page. So do a screen share or have them show up with a printed poster. And then as they're going through their five pictures, in the end, allow for a little bit of time or questions. What you're seeing is the, again, building of this web, this connection of dots, where people start to see themselves in other people. Oh, I didn't know you like boating. Oh, you have twin boys. I have twin boys as well, et cetera, et cetera. The goal here is to make connections they wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to make. The last one in this category, um, which again is a super easy one and one that you can curate in 30 seconds, is uh, the questions kind of game, if you will. Now I have hundreds of questions that I've collected over the years that I will pose to a team with the intention of loosening up the dialogue. Now I'm sure you guys have heard of the book of questions or more recently there's a game called We're Not Really Strangers, one of my new favorites. The goal here is to just pose one question to the group. It has nothing to do with work and ask for each member of the team to share their answer. So in the past, I've done things like, um, okay, if you could move the corporate headquarters anywhere in the world, where would you move it? At the time, my company was considering moving their corporate headquarters, so it made a lot of sense. The goal is to just pose a question, have everybody share their answer. No, you can pass, but everybody has to answer in the end. The questions could range from fun and silly to deep and serious. It really just depends on the nature of your current dynamic. I would start with fun and serious and then work your way in. For example, some other questions. How would you describe your fashion sense in grade school? That one is hilarious. If you were to be given a day off tomorrow, how would you spend that time? If you won the lottery, would you quit your job? If you couldn't do the job you have now, what would you do instead? How did you choose to do the work you do today? Again, quickly Google questions for teams and you'll get hundreds of examples of questions you can share with your team. And it'll take some of the pressure off of you as well. To take even more pressure off, you don't even have to find the question. You can ask everybody to come to the meeting with a question, and then everybody gets one meeting assigned to them to facilitate this particular activity. Again, in five to 10 minutes, you can start to build a web amongst the team members that help them to know each other more, um, which eventually leads to more mercy and grace when times are not so great. The fourth way you can build trust is through this concept of rules of engagement. It's definitely a military term, and it's a little trickier to do, but nonetheless important, especially if you, if you have a team that is um, pushing the boundaries of healthy behavior. I love the quote, um, the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behavior the leader is willing to tolerate. That is absolutely true. And the worst behavior the leader is willing to tolerate tends to fall in the, I can no longer trust this person, this team, this situation, and so forth. So for teams that are showing some less than good behavior choices, creating a rules of engagement document could be a really good solution. It's quite simple. You can certainly create a template, but in this case, have a white sheet of paper or a whiteboard electronic screen and have the group start to brainstorm. Okay, if this is our challenge, 
we're missing deadlines, we aren't making good on our deliverables, our commitments, and so forth. What will we agree to that will turn around that bad behavior? Another one, if we are gossiping about one another or um, overturning uh, actions that were agreed upon in the meeting, that's dysfunctional behavior. What could we commit to that would turn off that bad behavior and open it up for some more trustworthy behavior? You write down all of the good behavior and you have the team literally sign the bottom of it. If you have a virtual team, just have them do a, a, um, a electronic pen or they can put their own electronic signature on it. And then every time you meet, I would have that page either in the room posted on the wall or up in the deck that you're reviewing with the group via Zoom or Teams, or you can have it at the top of your agenda. Anything that keeps it top of mind for that group. This is what we've agreed to. Looking forward to seeing that come alive in this meeting. Next one, lean into repair. So this is the tough thing about trust. And oftentimes I work with teams that actually need to repair trust, which I guess is a form of building trust. But they had it once upon a time and through a series of things that had happened, sometimes it's new members coming in, sometimes it's projects not going well, et cetera, et cetera. They just lose their way with each other. And they've never stopped to talk about what happened, walk away empty and feel like they can live another day in a much more trusting environment and relationship. So in this case, I bet each of us can think of a relationship that we've impacted or perhaps damaged based on our behavior or assumption of intention. It might be time to address those sorts of situations. Now, you can't control the other person or their reaction, of course, but you can certainly lean in to the reset of that relationship. Those sorts of conversations require more time than I can offer on a, on a podcast, but here's a couple short and simple ways to get started. First, pick up the phone. Drop by their office, draft a quick email. Email I'd use as a last resort, but you get, the, you get the idea. Share that you've been thinking about them for a while now and that you might be long overdue for a heart-to-heart conversation. Or you can say something's been weighing on you and that you'd like to get your thoughts on that. Or you can say something like, um, I think we can both agree our relationship has been a little strained lately and I'd love to discuss what we can do to resolve that. I'm committing to making it better, and I hope you are too. Who can decline that kind of invitation, right? Offer to treat them to lunch or for coffee. Again, back to the breaking bread recommendation I had earlier. Again, a virtual coffee and chat these days because of COVID is better than nothing. So don't forget that Starbucks gift idea I mentioned earlier if you're going to choose to do that. Full disclosure, conflict is tough. Very few of us are good at it, including moi on occasion. Where we tend to lose our way is when we're not straight on our intention, the intention of being in service to the person across from us, right? The intention of having everybody walk away with all fingers and all toes intact after what could be a difficult or uncomfortable conversation. At least that's when I find myself on the bad end of a conversation, when I wasn't clear on my intention or when I lost my way. I'm going to leave this podcast episode today with one of the most powerful strategies I was taught about being open and vulnerable and selfless in conversations, one that has helped me build trust more often than not and, quite frankly, has made me uh, the coach I am today. 
man by the name of Greg Thompson, who at the time was founder and CEO of a company called Bluepoint. They were kind of a coaching, training, and development uh, outfit. And um, my company used a lot of their um, IP. Um, Greg was a phenomenal coach. He was transparent, courageous, insightful, had tremendous intuition. I learned a lot by watching Greg in, in action. But I was still rather new at coaching. This is going back, boy, about 15, 17 years ago now. We had a number of things on the agenda to talk to uh, one particular day. And knowing how skilled Greg was and how I always saw him show up in front of our group, the group he was helping to gain coaching skill, I just wanted to take a few minutes to get his advice on what had become an excruciatingly painful coaching experience for me. You see, I'd been asked to formally coach a senior leader at my company. This person was, boy, to say it lightly, he was a tough nut to crack. He had a really difficult reputation. I personally experienced him as abrasive, arrogant, misogynistic, and unwilling to change the very behaviors that probably landed him in my office in the first place. In our first conversation or two, he made it perfectly clear, F-bombs included, that there was nothing wrong with him and that he didn't need a coach. He thought of coaching as some sort of esoteric spiritual journey and began to share his very candid thoughts of anyone who did that sort of work for a living. He was talking about me, of course. He came out swinging. The first conversation was rough, uh, to say the least. And quite frankly, I lost all of my self-confidence. I couldn't find the right words for the situation. I didn't have a clever reply. I felt myself growing anxious with every insult he hurled my way. I started to dislike him a lot. I put off reading or responding his emails after that session. I thought he didn't deserve his role. I didn't think he deserved to be a leader. And I certainly didn't think he deserved to be working at this company that I love so much. Unfortunately, I had another meeting scheduled for that following week, and I was convinced it would be our final meeting. I am sure he would show up in a way that would give me sufficient data and observation to offer that leader who asked me to work with him um, to put him on a uh, plan of some sort. I would label him as uncoachable. And I'd recommend that he be managed out. It's the kiss of death in HR circles, right? And rarely did I ever pull that card. That's what was so frustrating to me. I thought everybody was coachable. It turns out that not everybody was coachable by me. Huge lesson there. So I had a hunch that Greg would have encountered a similar personality during his long tenure as an executive coach. He worked for Pepsi-Cola and whole bunch of just amazing organizations where he led HR. And again, this is something that he was born to do. He was a natural. So I posed my dilemma to him. What he shared with me was, number one, beyond anything I would have expected him to share. And two, a lesson and strategy that has stayed with me some 15, 20 years later. And I think it would benefit you. So I'm going to share it with you now. He warned me at first that uh, saying this is going to sound kind of weird. So he asked that I hear him out. Now I was even more intrigued at what he was going to say. He said, what if you stopped seeing him as a threat to you and started seeing him in a way that others in his life might see or have seen him in the past? That hit me like a ton of bricks. I was frustrated. So let's just unpack that first part. I totally disagreed with Greg on that. 
I said I had nothing to lose and that I was simply there to help him. He just didn't want the help. Now, for those of you in the coaching industry, you can tell that that alone was a sign of my naivete and inexperience. Greg then skillfully and lovingly explained that the way in which I had just described this leader was through the lens of the impact he had had on me. I was convinced. I lost my self-confidence. I didn't want, want to respond to his emails. I thought he was uncoachable. I disliked him. I thought he didn't deserve his role or to be a leader. Greg absolutely nailed it and called me on my BS. That's actually what it was. It was my ego eking through that relationship. He gave me a huge gift in the process. So this interaction, when I had with this leader, wasn't about me at all. And I wasn't there to help him or fix him or get him to see the light, air quotes. This was a human who found himself in a very difficult situation, who was trying his best to get out of it the only way he knew how. And I was being less than helpful. I was dismissive and I was arrogant in my own right. Two adjectives, quite frankly, I wouldn't normally use to describe myself. I consider myself to be a servant leader and almost always try to bring out the best in others. But I can blow it on occasion, and this was a big one. The strategy Greg showed me next is what turned this relationship around, and quite frankly, many others to come after that. Greg said, what if you were to see him as the man who goes home at the end of a really long, disastrous day as he puts his briefcase down in his chair and he crouches down to give his kids a hug, knowing that that was probably the highlight of his day? What if you saw him as his wife saw him on their wedding day, or as his mom saw him on his birthday, or as his best friend from college saw him as they were just hanging out in the dorm? What if we saw him as he graduated from college, how proud he was, and the future he thought he had ahead of him? What if we saw him as he got his first acceptance letter, perhaps to that company? What if you saw him in a totally different way to make room to see him as he is now. And there, my friends, was my full circle moment. This concept of I see you as you are now, not as you should be, not as you need to be, but as you are, is the lesson I constantly practice. And it is tough, especially as a parent. So full disclosure, let me tell you how the story ends here. I had to really practice getting into that headset. Greg's advice to me had me just soaking in those words for days before I had to meet with this leader. He asked and he recommends that I spend 10 to 15 minutes prior to every difficult conversation doing nothing more than getting into that headset. Imagine if you spent 10 to 15 minutes before any assumed difficult conversation doing nothing more than loving that person. You may not like them. But you can love them. There's a whole set of unconditional behaviors that go with that, right? Can you spend 10 to 15 minutes creating that imagery of them being admired and loved and cherished? That strategy alone helped me catch myself when I was being selfish and going inward or felt threatened or insufficient, which still happens, much less than it used to, but still happens. It allowed me to distance myself from what I saw being unpacked in front of me. Most of all, it allowed me to stay in service of the person across from me. Little judgment, 
lots of love. That next conversation with this leader was full of honesty, vulnerability, and help. Quite frankly, I started. I shared how I felt about myself during our conversations, and he finished by apologizing and going deep about how he felt about being sent to me in the first place. He was scared and felt at risk and felt like he was letting his family down. I got it. Now, it wasn't all locking arms and rose petals falling from the sky, but we each found the courage that allowed us to build trust in the most difficult of circumstances. We each saw each other for who we were and worked through difficult moments and tough conversations. We assumed goodness about each other, and that's what being vulnerable allows you to do, right? We created our own rules of engagement and built a path forward. Trust was built incrementally. It was slow, but courageous. We still keep in touch today, and I'm thrilled when I get to hear about how he and his beautiful family are doing. I'm so happy for him. One of the most difficult lessons to learn, right? Putting yourself out there. That lesson Greg offered so many years ago made me a better coach and, quite frankly, a better human. It helped me on my journey from going from smart to wise about humans. I have a long way to go, but I feel like I'm still on the path. He was and is an extraordinary coach. Again, it's not time, but courage that it helps trust blossom. You might need to go first, though. You might need to put yourself out there, model the behavior, offer trust first, and invite others in when they're ready. Trust me, it's worth it, if you dare. That's all for this episode of Do I Dare? Please rate, review, and subscribe. Forward to your friends who you think could use the message. But most of all, send me a DM or email note. I'd love to hear what this episode did for you. Best of luck, and until next time.